Welcome to Season 2 of Access and Opportunity. In this episode, we will explore becoming self-made. And who better to discuss the topic of entrepreneurship than with the media mogul Nellie Galan. Nellie is the true definition of self-made. She started her career at the age of 13, selling Avon products to her friends, and since then has become the first Latina president of entertainment for the U.S. television network Telemundo. She's also an Emmy Award-winning producer of over 700 episodes of television in Spanish and English, including the Fox hit reality series The Swan. On top of her major TV successes, she's a real estate powerhouse in California, a doctor of clinical psychology, a serial entrepreneur, and a New York Times best-selling author. Thank you for being here with me today, Miss Nellie. Love being with you. Yeah. I can't wait for this conversation. So tell us a little bit about Nellie's journey. Well, I think we have to start with me being an immigrant. Uh, you know, my parents left Cuba when and came here when I was five years old. And one day to the next, the economic system in Cuba collapsed. The banks kept all the money. We had to leave and come to this country. And we were blessed that we were sponsored by an American family that were religious, Presbyterian, and they, their church was taking one family per church. Wow. And we got chosen. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come in. And we lived with this American family for a year. My parents were so grateful. My dad went from being a well-off guy to working in the Ford Motors, painting cars. My mother worked in a factory. And I became the grown-up translator like like a lot of people. Mm. I think that I had no idea, uh, except taking care of my family, what I was going to do. Except you already said that I started selling Avon. I didn't just start selling Avon like kids today that want to be, you know, makers or entrepreneurs. No, my parents were broke. My parents had put me in an all-girl Catholic school. And I'm in the seventh grade. And an old lady down the street said to me, honey, I sell Avon. Why don't you sell some Avon in your school and I'll give you some free lipstick. And I thought, I don't need some free lipstick. I need to change that deal. And Again, like a lot of kids that are kids of immigrants, you're empathetic to your parents. All you care about is that your parents don't suffer. Mm -hmm. And I went back to her and I said, I'll sell Avon in school, but it's got to be 50-50. And I'd seen that on a TV show. <laughs> so I started selling Avon. And, I, and to me, this is the key point in my life. Because in the first week out of my locker, I made 200 bucks. Wow. And after four weeks, I made 800 bucks, and I was able to pay down my tuition for my all-girl Catholic school that my parents couldn't afford. Wow. But I felt like I had to save my dad because mm -hmm. his ego would not allow that. And so I said to the nun, send me a letter home um, and make something up. I got, you know, something. I, I want an award, something. I bring it home, and my mother goes, what does the letter say? And my father says, oh, my God. This country is great. Your daughter is a genius. And Jesus helped us after all. <laughs> and, and really, that is the beginning of everything. Because I think immigrant kids internalize very early that they have to be the problem solver. Mm. That they have to be the helper of the family. You know, it's very difficult for me to have a son now who just started college. My own son has had so much more than I had. Mm -hmm. I don't see him being as empathetic to me as I have always been to my parents. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really serves you. 
because you really know how to read a room. Yeah. You know how to look and, and feel someone's pain mm-hmm. and feel that, that somehow something you said hurts them or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think empathy is a big deal mm-hmm. in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I began and I realized I, I lost my childhood at that moment. But I gained my power. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I moved on. You're asking me about when I became president of Telemundo. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Because I really have no special skills. Like, I love that you can sing. I'm just so jealous. I don't do anything. I mean, I am just the hardest working person in the world. And I pay attention and I'm empathetic. Yeah. So, you know, I started out as an intern. Mm. I was working in TV as a little, like a teen reporter. Like, I was... I was um, Lisa Ling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I was a TV reporter, and I was working at CBS, and they sent me out. I was a stringer. They sent me out to interview a lot of people. I interviewed this guy named Norman Lear. And he's like, what are you? Are you Jewish or what? And I was like, no, I live in Teaneck, New Jersey, and it's all Jews. So I sound Jewish, but I'm, I'm Latina. And he's like, my partner and I just bought the first Spanish TV station in the United States. We got the, you know, they had gotten the yes, license. Yes, And I get a call from this guy, Jerry Parencio, who then became a billionaire. At that time, he was a multimillionaire. And he's like, I want to meet you. And I went to meet him. And he's like, you need to come and work for us. And I go, no offense, sir, but I work at CBS. I'm mm-hmm. going to go be a network correspondent. And he goes, that's a factory worker. He's like, do you understand you're Latina? You speak Spanish and you don't know that the Latino market is going to be a multi-billion dollar business? You're going to be employee number one. Do you know what that means? And I said, no. And he goes, are you rich? I go, no, sir, I'm not. He goes, well, I'm rich. I suggest you come to work for us. And I always say that that was the greatest decision of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think had I not been an immigrant, my ego would have surpassed this feeling that I had that I felt like, no, go with the people that know what they're talking about and they're rich. Mm -hmm. And if not, I would have been like, no, I want to be on TV. He goes, Mm -hmm. forget that. You're just going to be a factory worker. He totally diminished what I thought was like this. Was the big deal. The big deal. Yeah, yeah. I went to work for Norman and Jerry and I was employee number one in Newark, New Jersey. And I was the station manager of a rinky. I mean, it was no bigger than the whole station was this size of this room. Wow. And I feel like I got my MBA on the job. I mean, I ran the station. I literally would open up the mail and it would say, uh, we have an infomercial in the middle of the night. If you put it on for one hour, we'll pay you a million dollars a year. And I'd say to my three little engineers that worked with me, I'd say, what does it cost for us to stay? You know, we we would end the night at 11. If we stay up till three and they go, oh, nothing, like $1,000 a week or something. I go, well, I think we're going to do this deal. Yeah. (laughs) And I learned how to run a business. Yeah. And I worked for them for four years. And by the way, they were off doing Hollywood things. I barely saw them. And the only reason I learned so much is because Jerry Parencio was a boxing promoter. And he had a private plane in Teterboro. And he'd say to me, listen, I have... A celebrity that needs to go to my one of my boxing matches. Can you go take them on the plane and this and that? And I go, oh, if I volunteer to work every weekend, I'm going to meet everyone in Hollywood. Mm. And I ended up being on the weekends the production assistant that would fly people to Atlantic City or to it or or to Las Vegas and take them to boxing matches. So I met everyone Everybody. in Hollywood, being the schlepper. Yeah. Three years later, when they sold the company to Saul Steinberg in New York. And Saul Steinberg was going to turn it into the first TV network. They sold, they had bought it for $3 million. They sold it for $75 million. For entrepreneurs to hear, that means that I had to have revenue 
of $7 million a year from zero. Yes. I had brought that up to $7 million and we sold on a multiple That's true. That's of $7 right. million. Mm-hmm. One day I come into work and the lawyer for Jerry Parencho is there and he's like, uh, we have great news for you. We just sold the company. And I go, what? And he goes, we sold the company and you can either go work for the new people or we're going to give you whatever. And I and I was just heartbroken because I thought, this is my baby. Mm-hmm. How could they have sold it and not even told me they were going to sell it? What if I wanted to buy it? You know, I didn't even mm-hmm. know what the price was at that moment. So I, I, I was in Newark. I go over and I go see Jerry Parencio in New York and I do everything you're not supposed to do in business. I go up to him and I go... And I'm bawling. How could you do this to me? This is my baby. You don't even care. This is my market. And he goes, young lady, those are my chips. You want to play? Go get your own chips. And I thought, what a jerk. And I was so angry at him. And, wow. and I went into my victim what a mode. Right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, this horrible man just screwed me. And this. And then I went home like I, like I do now. Mm-hmm. I cried it out. I was catatonic for a couple of days. And then I, I woke up and I said, why don't I think I could do it myself? Why don't I? And and I thought maybe this guy, I mean, he didn't he didn't talk to me like I'm a minority that he was condescending to. He was real. And, you know, I didn't even want to go work for Saul Steinberg because I felt like, no, I'm going to now do I'm never going to work for anyone again. I'm going to do this for myself. Mm-hmm. And they had given me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Mm hmm. And they had given me the, this Mercedes Benz as a gift. And what year is this? This is in. Let's see. I'm tw- at this point. I'm 25, so it's 88, 89, uh-huh. right? And the reason I'm, I'm asking because two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars then was a lot. Was a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, so I had three hundred thousand dollars between the car and the money. Yeah. I moved from my fancy apartment in the Upper West Side. That was three thousand dollars a month. And I moved to a $300 fourth floor walk up in the East Village. Why? Because when I got all my mentorship time, you know, I always say I don't have one mentor that thinks they were my mentor. I just hung out enough. Yeah. When I was on the plane with Jerry, I'd overhear all his conversations. Yeah. And he'd say, when I was your age, you know, I lowered my overhead. People that lose in life have high overhead. I mean, again, I didn't learn it from a book. I didn't go to business school. I didn't learn it from my parents. And so I said, I have to reduce my overhead. Mm-hmm. So I moved to my $300 apartment. And then I said to myself, I'm going to start a business. And mm-hmm. at the time, what I thought was the business was, I need production. I need to do production because I was buying programming from Latin America. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that does, that's not relatable to U.S. Latinos. And I'm like, I'm going to make TV shows. So what did I do? I called up everyone I had ever met on the plane. Everyone that we now know of in Hollywood. And I said, you you know that I worked for Jerry and, and, and Norman and I've made them a lot of money and they were in the, they're in the Latino market and they all took a meeting with me and they all go, they sold out. You know, we don't think this Latino thing is going to hit, but you want to come and work for me? So I got a lot of job offers, Yeah. but no one really cared about what I wanted to do. And so, Carla, the sad part of my story is that for four years... I did not make one penny. Mm-hmm. I did not get one deal. Okay, so let me interrupt you because I'm not sure that's a sad point. I, I think it's a playbook point it is a play- for entrepreneurs to understand. So first playbook point I've heard so far is that you were very intentional about learning from those who were around you who were already doing. And I love that because I always say learn on somebody else's dime. Go get a job first in and preferably in the area that you want to start your business so that you can see how they got started, how they 
they attract investors, how they speak to shareholders, how they talk to stakeholders. You're just learning. They're paying you to learn. To me, my job, any job I have, I don't care how bad it is. Yeah. It's school. Yeah. And that's what you did. You learned. But the second point is, and here's where I think entrepreneurs get caught up, is that you think you have to have a certain appearance. or And, and appearance is not just how you're showing up at meetings, but how you're living. So you need certain accoutrement, if you will. But you said, uh, he said, lower the overhead. So I'm going from $3,000. And $3,000 apartment in 1980s was fabulous. I know I was fabulous. living in New York at that time. And my rent was easily a third of the amount. Yeah, it was so, And my apartment wasn't terrible, but it wasn't $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. All right. So I know what kind of apartment that yes. was. But you said, no, I'm going to do $300, no doorman, no elevator, fourth floor walk up, all because you were trying to get your own chits. Right. So I think to, to go to the point again, playbook point is downsize as much as you can so that you can preserve the capital so you can play. But I'll tell you what I did wrong in that in those four years, which I, I don't want people to do. You don't just go from one day to the next, either quit your job or you get laid off or whatever and start a business. Yeah, I, I bootstrapped it, but I was missing a key point, I think, that in the fourth year I figured out. I, I was getting all these job offers. I was not getting... Nobody was really liking my business plan. And I didn't realize something's wrong with my business plan, right? Oh, you didn't hear the market speaking. No. Okay. And what I should have done and what I tell people to do now is in the fourth year, I get a mailer because we didn't have email back then. I get a mailer where they invite me to a local chamber of commerce in New York City. I was so desperate. Yeah. Like, dear God, I'm such a good girl. Throw <laughs> me a bone. So I thought it was a sign. I go to this Chamber of Commerce mixer. My whole life changed because I was around other people that were entrepreneurial, and I finally asked for help. Ah. And I said, what is wrong with my business plan? And they're like, well, I don't know that there's a real market for what you're doing. What I didn't realize that I then figured out is there was not enough distribution Mm -hmm. for my content. So that's why no one was paying attention. It's like when black people had shows and there was not enough distribution for the shows. There was no afterlife for the show. Until we figured out the distribution, the other part doesn't work. Distribution comes before content. Mm -hmm. So I get a call one day from HBO and they're like, I'm in the middle of figuring this all out, that something's wrong. And HBO calls me and says, listen, you know, I met you. You're really a lovely girl, but we don't want to do your content thing. But we want to launch HBO in Latin America. And we've hired three MBAs and we've sent them down there and they can't figure it out. I go, well, do they speak Spanish? And they go, no. And I go, "Okay, so can we hire you as a consultant? And I go, yeah, I'll go. Well, to me, that was like the easiest job anybody could give me to do. Because remember, running that little TV station there were only five families in Latin America that controlled all the TV, and I knew them all. Yeah. So I went down there, and in three months, I had the thing up and running. My second person that called me was number three employee of ESPN was an African-American guy who was in charge of international, and he calls me, still my dearest friend, Bernard Stewart, calls me up, and he says, listen, I heard you just launched HBO. Come and see me. So I went to see him, and he says, listen, I have a big deal for you. I need to launch Three channels in Latin America, sports channels. I'm not going to hire you as a consultant. I'm going to outsource the whole thing to you. It's a huge deal. It's $5 million. And I said, Bernard, I would love to do it, but I have a problem. I am sports illiterate. I know nothing about sports. It doesn't interest me. And he said, he goes like this. He goes, 
I am closing my ears. I'm not hearing you. You speak multiple languages, don't you? I go, yes. He goes, sports is a language. I'm hiring you a tutor. You're going to go become an expert in sports. You don't have to like it. <laughs> oh, my god. You're going to come back in a month, and you're going to do us both a favor. Nellie, in my community, they say you have a calling on your life, honey. I cannot believe this story. <laughs> I come back. I still don't like sports, but I know everything about it. I launched three channels in Latin America, and that's when I started putting the dots together. Okay, we need distribution. The channels have to exist before the content exists. Okay, note to self. I get a third call. The third call is from a gentleman who's working for somebody that's from Australia. I don't know who he is. He's like, uh, HBO and ESPN told us that you did a great job. Uh, we have a buyer that's buying a major studio. He would like to meet with you. They fly me to Los Angeles and I meet Rupert Murdoch. And he hadn't even started Fox yet. And he says to me, I want to launch seven channels in Latin America and then around the world. And I heard you can do this. Again, timing, emerging business, emerging market, which now I try to drill that into. You don't just go into any field. Mm -hmm. You have to go into a field where you're employee one or what you're doing. Just like they're started. so desperate that they'll even give you the deal if you don't even have that much experience. And he says to me, I want you to launch seven channels. And I said, I want to make programming. And he said, you're wrong. And I said, what do you mean I'm wrong? And he goes, if you want to be the queen of programming, you need to be the queen of distribution. What you know how to do is launch channels. Go do it. I thought, this guy's smarter than I am. I just have to listen. And I did. I, I think this is my first big career mistake that I'm about to tell you. He said to me, okay, let's do this together. First, you can come and work for me. I go, I don't want to work for you. And he goes, then why don't you, why don't we partner on this? And I said, and again, in my, in those airplane rides with Jerry Printer, I had heard him say, don't give away a piece of your company, borrow money, right? I didn't hear that if it's Rupert Murdoch, you don't borrow the money, you become partners with Rupert Murdoch. So the rest of his <laughs> life, he'll give you business. So I said, I need you to loan me money. And he goes, how much money do you think you need to scale? And in my mind... Because remember, I had the revenue from ESPN and the revenue from HBO because I was working on both things. I thought, I need a million dollars. But I again, oh. if, I was, wait a minute, if I was the Latina immigrant that could never ask for five cents, let alone millions of dollars, I got into the body of Jerry Parencio. Okay. And I thought, what would Jerry Parencio do? <laughs> and this is why I tell women, go take acting lessons. My entire life, if I was really speaking in my own voice, I couldn't ask anybody for money. I got into the body of Jerry Parencio, and I said, what would Jerry say? And he go, when you're going to ask for money, ask for five times the money, you're going to run out. And ask him like it's stock, like you're stock, and he's going to miss out if he doesn't do it. And I said, I need $5 million. And he said, okay, I'll give you a $5 million line of credit. The easiest thing I've ever done in my life, and it's never been easy again, let me just say. But again, timing. He was desperate for someone to do it. I got the $5 million. I had carved out... HBO and ESPN. And he said, you cannot take on any competitors until you pay me back. The next two years of my life are a blur and I don't remember them. I started a channel factory in LA. I moved my butt to Latin America. I had to live a year in Mexico. I had to go to Argentina. I had to go because I had to create marketing offices regionally. Mm -hmm. 
But the deal part was easy because I knew all the players. Yeah. And what we did in L.A. is we did all the dubbing and all the, you know, it was like a meat and potatoes business. Mm -hmm. I paid him back in two years. Wow. And when I really made the money was when I was able to take on MGM, Sony, because I could charge them whatever. Mm -hmm. Because now I had a track record. Yes. And what happened, and this is a long way to get to Telemundo. What happened is Saul Steinberg, remember, let's go back, had yes, bought Telemundo, yeah. an insurance American company, knew nothing about Spanish TV, had bought at a very high price 15 stations in America, turned it into Telemundo. The man got brain cancer. The rest of the company didn't care about this asset. It went into bankruptcy court. And Rupert Murdoch's people said, we're going to try to take a play and buy Telemundo. And I worked with them very carefully into how we were going to turn Telemundo into like a bilingual network, all Mm -hmm. this and all that. And they were in a blind auction in bankruptcy court with Sony and Sony won. Wow. And I was again distraught because at that time in my life, I was like, I was, you know, doing all these channels, but again, entrepreneurship. When I got to the 10th channel that I had launched, I go, this business is going to have diminishing returns because the more you have competitive people, then your clients are never happy with you. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I felt like once I launch all these channels, I've got to go back. I got to now go do the programming. Right. So when Sony got it, I was distraught. But Sony called me uh-huh. because I was the only Latina, even though I didn't have an MBA. Even though I was, you know, I was the only Latina that had fiscal responsibility for 10 channels. Mm -hmm. When I speak to my multicultural women and my multicultural entrepreneurs, I always say a lot of us, especially in the entertainment industry, it's all very creative. I'm blessed that I'm actually really good at math Mm -hmm. and that along the way I hired math tutors. I never went to business school. So I knew that I had gaps in my education. And so I hired tutors. If Kobe can have coaches, I can have coaches. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I became very good at math and very good at running a budget Mm -hmm. and very good at being profitable. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was the name of the game, that people were judging you based on performance. The only reason you knew that, Nelly, I would argue, is because you were listening. Okay, and you knew. And in that business, performance matters. But again, let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about the the difficulty. And that's why I said you had a calling on your life because you were around people at the right time. I was. And and you were the only one uh, brave enough to be playing in a space that no one else was playing. So you were the only person for them to call. You came into a space where there was clearly a dearth of expertise, clearly a dearth of experiential capital, and you were passionate about doing it. And you said, okay, I'll do the thing you want me to do, but at the same time, I'm going to try to figure out how to get how to get this thing done as well. Well, Carla, I'm going to tell you also the, the sad part of, this, of that story, which is sometimes we think we want something, and when you get it, you realize, what was the big deal? Like, you know, again, going back to math, right? I was running this business launching channels. It was so profitable because you would have one staff for every three channels. I mean, it, it, it was like printing cash, right? Yes. Then Telemundo, Sony shows up. And because I had fiscal responsibility, not because of my creative brilliance, because yeah. I was fiscal, mm-hmm. they said, we're going to buy that business from you and we're going to make you the, the, the president of entertainment. And I went to work for Sony, which was the most difficult, hard 
four years of my life because it was a company. And, and let's put it in, in, in finance terms, right? So as you know, there are companies that are build that build companies. Yes. And there are there are companies that get torn apart and get sold for whatever. And they're they're, they're there to be flipped like mm-hmm. a piece of real estate, right? So Rupert Murdoch and Fox were builders of brands. And Sony were sellers of, you know, of pieces of brands. How's that? They really emotionally did not care about the Latino market. I was all in. I mm-hmm. felt like, oh, my God, I've known how to do it in Latin America. I've done it in a local. I know the local station. I know how they think. And now I get to do the programming. So I was in it, all in it. And, and I, you know, they, they sold the company in four years for an ungodly amount of money to NBC. And I was a disruptor. I was not meant to be in a corporation, even though I think... Everyone should be in a corporation because there are things you have to learn. It's a good training corp- ground. And, it's, and the way they scale and, you know, what, what, and then you also know what not to do. Like mm-hmm. they don't always connect the dots. Mm-hmm. It's under their nose. They have the playbook, but they don't even use it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And my boss said to me when we sold Telemundo, which was very painful for me, he said, what are you complaining about? I'm going to make you a very rich woman. Mm-hmm. And I thought, but yeah, but that's not everything in life. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. That's where your culture comes back. You love the game. You love doing it. You love your culture. You want to be someone who's changing, Mm -hmm. you know, the status quo. Anyway, we sold it to NBC. NBC takes it over. And they're like, we don't know how to do this. And what year was that? That was, we sold it in 97, but they didn't take it over till almost 2000. So here's the reason why I'm asking the time, because you said that Sony didn't care about it as much. So going back to being an entrepreneur and doing the thing that you're good at, and you, you characterize the Fox organization as a builder of brands, you characterize the Sony organization as a harvester, let me call it. That's right. But back in the 90s, what they were really good at is that they had a powerful brand. That's right. So once they slapped their brand on anything that they bought, it created an immediate premium Mm -hmm. simply because they owned it. That's right. No matter what they did with it. That's right. Right? So for them, they were playing to their level of expertise. There was an asset that was going to be valuable to somebody might not be valuable to them, but if they could put that wrapper on it, they were going to get their well, return. I, I also think I didn't know then. I mean, I, I really did go to, like, business school on the job. I didn't <laughs> also know then that companies also need to lose money in certain companies because for tax reasons, they want something to go bad, so they have a tax write-off. And, and how they start, <laughs> you know, when you work for a big conglomerate, you realize they have so many different companies that their that their tax year starts in different months yeah. and how they play. It's like a, it's like a chess game. And for you, it's your whole life. It's your mission. Yeah. And this is why I wrote in my book, mission and money are parallel tracks. Yeah. Yeah. You Fair. can't, you can't be all into your mission and not keep track of that, that they are parallel tracks. Now that's a playbook point for sure. So, okay. You go to uh, NBC, you build this thing. I basically become Tyler Perry. Right. I don't work for them. I say to them, I will do it out of my own company. And I become Tyler Perry. Basically, I'm Latina Tyler Perry. Okay, so you created all the content. And when you see that some of my shows that I developed in the Latino market, I own... Now, the deal that I made with them, I own the shows, which nobody gets to own the shows. A Tyler would get to own the shows and a Nelly because we're experts in that niche. Yes. That's the other playbook thing. A niche. Yes. And that's why when I hear young people that are multicultural, they, and they go, oh, I don't want to be, I, I'm too black in this corporation or I'm too Latino and they think I'm too, no, 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 no. 
Niche is the way, if you mm-hmm. are an expert in your pain, mm-hmm. if you are an expert at what you know, you better milk that thing. I mm-hmm. mean, Jerry Perinjo was right when he told me that. You're Latina and you want to go be at CBS? No. Go be the expert, the number one expert at this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I turned myself into. Mm-hmm. So where have I really made money in programming? The one or two shows, you know, television shows, I think people need to hear this, is like building buildings. I mean, that's why I'm so good in real estate. You're a contractor. You build a show and you and you ha- you better be good with the overhead because most, a lot of producers, they do the show and then when they get audited by the network, the network goes, we're not paying for that, we're not paying for that, and you go over. Mm-hmm. And when you go over in the, in, in the actual show that you make, you have to wait till the show goes into syndication to make money. That is a bad business model. Yeah. <laughs> you better make money every single day. Yeah. And if you're not making at least 20%, you're really bad at your job. Yeah. Okay? So you make money on shows, whether they really hit it out of the park. And hitting it out of the park in our world is that they air all over the world. Mm-hmm. But you still make money, right? You're, 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 you're in a service business, so to speak. But what happened? Because I own those shows, a couple of them were sold to the networks. And when I sold them to the networks, I was able to keep a bigger ownership piece. Yeah. And nowadays, there's no ownership piece with Netflix and all this. People don't realize it's not an emerging business. Mm-hmm. It sounds glamorous, yeah. but it's ego. It's not emerging anymore. Yes. So in those two or three shows that I was able to cross over mm-hmm. into the mainstream because of my ownership position... Those shows made money. Mm -hmm. The rest was just meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, once I got into the meat and potatoes, I realized, what was the big deal with me wanting to do shows? It also reminds me, and that's why I say to to everyone that I work with and everyone, my favorite word in the English language is groundedness. Uh Our ego is our enemy. Uh Whenever you think you want to do something, because it, and it's okay. It's okay to say that. Sometimes we just want to do something because it makes us happy. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But don't mix money with ego. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a playbook, boy. That is a big <laughs> mistake. I, as I tell people, I said, you know, you want to make a movie? Go become rich and make your own movie. Yeah. You don't want to make a movie that a studio owns and they're telling you what to do and the actors are giving you a hard time. Make it with your, pardon the French, F you money. Yeah. Yep. Understood. So now let's pivot as we go down that track. <laughs> so now you mentioned earlier, you said, that's why I'm a good real estate uh, yes. investor. Okay. Why real estate? What okay. made you decide to do real Again, estate? Again, the airplane with Jerry Perenchio. Yeah. No one in my family ever told me this. My parents were afraid to put money down to do anything because they had just gone through a trauma. Jerry Perenchio said, when you make money, don't do what minorities do. He goes, they buy bling. He goes, don't buy bling. He goes, you don't care what other people think. He goes, in the end, you'll laugh. He said, go buy commercial buildings. Now, why would I have even heard that? I yeah. mean, he's like, if you can afford it, buy your house last. Or don't even buy it. You know, you, you can buy a house if you want to, but commercial real estate. And, and I said in one of those trips, I go, well, why? And he said, because this business is up and down. This entertainment thing comes and goes. In life, you have to make money while you sleep. And when he said that to me, I swear to God, I felt like somebody was speaking Russian. I yeah. didn't. I had never heard that. Yeah. And 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 what I realized, you know, being around him is, my family does not understand the financial system of this country at all. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the financial system of this country. It's almost like putting the dots together, like going. Oh, my God, like all these people live in a certain way and think a certain way and we think in another way. And and so we're out. 
And I was like, what does that mean, make money while you sleep? And he said, the money you make and the money you save is not going to take you to the end of your life. Mm -hmm. It's the money you invest that makes money while you sleep. And during that time, so I had Jerry Parencho. I didn't have money to invest at that moment. Okay, so like, note to self, and then I never thought about it again. When I went to work at Fox, Rupert Murdoch was like, I'm going to give you a, a bungalow on the Fox lot. You know, from my office, I got a bungalow. It was really no big deal, but whatever. My staff was like, oh, my God, we're on the Fox lot, and we get to eat in the commissary where we see celebrities. And the first month I'm there, I get a bill for $45,000 for the bungalow. I go, hell to the no. Mm-hmm. And I go, what do you mean? And and that's the first time that the Jerry Parencio dot, I go, I need to go find a building. And my staff is like, no, we don't want to leave the Fox lot. And I go, the Fox lot is Rupert Murdoch's brand. It's not my brand. And I said to everybody, I was new to L.A. I didn't know L.A. And I said, what is the worst place to live in L.A.? Uh And they said, Venice Beach. It's a dump. It's full of gangs. I go, I'm Latina. I don't have issues with gangs. I'm fine with gangs. And coming from New York, where we saw, I lived in the East Village. And by the time I left the East Village, it was, you know, regentrifying. I come down to Venice. I bought my first building for $700,000. And my mortgage on the building was $14,000. So I was already saving money. And, you know, my staff almost had mutiny. We're leaving. And I said, well, leave. We're going to be in Venice. If you want to go have lunch at the Fox lot, you have a pass. You can get in. I started buying there. And then I noticed, I said, Venice is going to be big. It was like a New Yorker thing. Yeah. And again, I lived beneath my means. So I was making a lot of money. Those were the years I made the most money. I lived like a pauper. All my friends were buying Jaguars. They were going on trips to Europe. I had like a crappy car. I lived in, I rented a crappy place. Every penny I made, I bought all the buildings around me. And I did notice that Rupert Murdoch was way more interested in buying real estate for his company then he was really that interested in running the company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to this day, my, this woman that is this older Jewish lady who is 75 now, who I met when I was looking for real estate. She was a real estate agent looking for real estate in Venice. And she was like, you know, I, I saw this property. She goes, you're buying this property. And I go, no, I'm because I was I was like my immigrant fear. No. And she's like, honey. You're going to buy this property, blah, blah, blah. And she really helped me. And I I started just taking her to lunch every week. Yeah. I tell my son all the time, I said, son, every kid that nobody pays attention to in school, you become friends with them. You take them out. You pay attention to them because those kids are going to grow up to be, you know, Mm -hmm. the stars of the world. I pay attention to people that other people don't pay attention to. And I have to tell you, I have a cabal of women mentors. Mm Mm-hmm. My banker's been my banker for 25 years. I tell every entrepreneur, if you don't have a personal banker that's your best friend, Mm -hmm. your banker's your shrink. Mm -hmm. When you, you will get into trouble. You will have at times when you run out of money. If you don't have a relationship with a banker, you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. I've given the same advice. And I said, you know, the, wherever you put your money, start a personal relationship with that person. Because at the end of the day, that first loan is more personal than it is anything That's else. That's right. They need to look you in the eye and know that you're going to pay that money back and that you're not going to embarrass them for extending their personal currency on you. I mean, I, I have to have entrepreneurs hear this, that I've done very well in television. However... What's what is shocking even to me, which tells you a lot about math 
versus mission. Mm-hmm. I've made five times the money in real estate. Wow. Than in my television life. Mm-hmm. Because television has made me, yes, it made me the money to put the equity into some of these properties, right? But my TV career sometimes has gone up, sometimes it's gone down. There have been years where it's been, but we all know at the end of the year you pay taxes, mm-hmm. right? So equity in something that is making money while you sleep and using the tax laws, which to me, to me the biggest secret sauce in this country that kills me because women don't know it, uh, minority women and men don't know it. We know, we don't really, we don't love learning the tax laws. I love learning the tax laws mm-hmm. because I realize when you see Donald Trump go on TV and say, I barely pay tax. And we all go, ah, well, you can barely pay tax too. If you put your money in the right things and you use the tax laws to your favor. Mm-hmm. We live in a country that does have laws, assets. You know, there's so many assets in the federal government that you could tap into But we don't know. But I also understand that immigrants, that people of color have obstacles. Our life is an obstacle course. And I think these are important conversations Mm -hmm. because I want people to think if I, with parents that knew nobody, with no money, with nothing, no education, I've gotten my education over time myself with my own money. My parents could not afford to send me to school and I have had to support my family. If I could do it, anybody could do it. Mm -hmm. That is the key to the whole story. Agreed. So we have a tradition uh, in Access and Opportunity where we do a lightning round and we try to get our listeners an opportunity to to learn more about you as the woman, the personal. But I would argue with the conversation we've had, <laughs> if, if they miss the personal now, I don't, I'm not sure what to say there because we've had, I, I feel, a very personal conversation and I thank you for that. So lightning round, are you ready? Ready. Favorite TV show? Well, right now it would be This Is Us. East Coast or West Coast? Mm, well, I have to say West Coast because I'm living in the West Coast, but tough because I love East Coast. The next business venture you're most excited about? I have a really big idea for women and entrepreneurship, but I can't say it because I'm superstitious. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Texting or talking? Talking. Last thing you downloaded? A contract. Favorite vacation destination? Miami. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? You. Oh, I'll take that. I will accept that invitation right you, now. You. Okay. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Oh, wow. That is such a great question. Darn it. Um, immigrant, grateful, and giving back. Okay. All righty. Nelly Galan, thank you very much for being thank with us you, today. Carla. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity. Mm-hmm.